Hello, my name is Eric English, and I'm your resident philosopher, theologian, and ninja. Well, hey, everyone, we have a great show for you today. It's a little bit different than what you might be used to. Today, I'm doing Unenlightenment's first solo podcast. We'll be doing solo podcasts every now and then so that we can jump into some of the theological, philosophical, and cultural issues of the day. Today, we are going to talk about unenlightenment. What does it mean? It's a question I get asked all the time. What does unenlightenment mean? Well, to put it simply, unenlightenment is the undoing of our enlightenment presuppositions. I know that really doesn't tell us a whole lot. So in order for us to understand this, we're going to jump in deep into this. In order to understand what this means, we need to do some historical reconstruction. You see, up to the Enlightenment, the church had been the primary power broker of knowledge for at least a thousand years. And the Enlightenment came along as a rationalization of that irrationalism that was occurring during that time. Scripture was the primary means of knowledge, and anything that contradicted that was seen as heretical and not a part of, or should not be a part of the community's discussion on reality. The Enlightenment is really characterized by a rationalism that was meant to combat the church's irrationalism. And the hallmark of that Enlightenment thinking is the development of modernism, which we will discuss more in a few minutes. Emerging from France in the early 17th century is the father of the Enlightenment, René Descartes. And Descartes was known for his famous idea, cogito ergo sum, which means I think, therefore I am. Basically, what he meant by this was that there are things that I can doubt in this world. And in fact, I can doubt everything. There's nothing in this world that I cannot doubt except the fact that I have the ability to doubt, to think, to reason. Those things are, are axiomatic and just a part of who I am. Therefore, um, the ability to doubt one's own existence was really the pathway to obtaining knowledge of oneself, as well as the world around us. That's a very simplistic understanding of Descartes, but all that's really necessary for what we're talking about today. Next on our list in this intellectual genealogy that we're constructing here is Immanuel Kant. Now, Immanuel Kant does not come into the picture until the mid to late 18th century. So there's a gap between Rene Descartes and Immanuel Kant. And then in that gap, we have really a scientific and mathematical revolution that's taken place. Some lightweights you've probably never heard of before, like Isaac Newton and Leibniz. Uh, these people were important during this time and really helped to kick off the scientific revolution. Following uh, Newton and Leibniz, we have Immanuel Kant, who comes into the picture mid to late 18th century. Now, Kant is a major heavyweight when it comes to um, his philosophy and in intellectualism in general, and in um, the Enlightenment in general. He is not, however, a heavyweight when it comes to um, what we're talking about here for modernism. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on Kant right now. Um, he did argue that uh, something that's important is that he did argue that metaphysics is merely speculation and has nothing to do with reality. And we will come back to that idea because that idea will be carried down this um, intellectual lineage that we're going through. And uh, he is also the father of German idealism, which is what we will we'll get into a discussion here on the next philosopher. 
Coming in in the late 18th to early 19th century, we have G.W.F. Hegel. Now, Kant laid a small foundation for Hegel's German idealism. He is best known as the father of modernism. Now, modernism emerges from within the Enlightenment until the 20th century when the Enlightenment began to taper off, and perhaps even the 18th century as well. But Hegel believed that absolute truth could be obtained. It was an audacious claim that would sell well with the church. And Hegel believed that the, you could develop a natural methodological framework, which he titled dialectic. He said it's found in nature. And so because it's found in nature as a logical constituent, it is able to guide us in the absolute or into the absolute. And so the framework has three components to it. The first part of it is thesis, and that is the question that is under consideration or the idea that's being considered. The second part to that is the antithesis, and the antithesis is the opposite of the thesis. So when in considering the opposite to the proposition that you're also considering, provides you with additional in helpful information. And finally is synthesis, and that is the middle ground between antithesis and thesis. From there, you take your, your answer, the thing that you've discovered from your synthesis and submit that to your new, as your new thesis, and you play the process over again. Now, for some reason, Hegel believed that you had to do this three times in order to come up with truth, and it's not entirely clear where that number comes from, but that was nevertheless what he taught. It's what his uh, philosophy in, in endured, but uh, other philosophers have come along since then and said, really, you should be doing this process until the process can't be done anymore, and then you can come up with a absolute answer to the question. So this is a very audacious claim that Hegel makes, and as you can imagine, it's very, given that you're able to understand absolute truth, in conjunction with the, using this method, that this would be uh, really handy for two types of institutions in particular. The first institution is science and just the methodologies that are incorporated there. And in fact, that uh, Hegel's uh, German idealism and absolutism is where the scientific method comes from. So um, in the experimentation, the thesis, and all of that stuff that you see within the scientific method is a direct result of Hegel's influence. Now, I want to take a minute and, and stop here in this lineage to talk about a tangential issue, the church. Uh, it's tangential and non-tangential at the same time. It is, it is important to note how the church became involved. And by the church, I'm referring specifically to the Western church. Now, the church in a lot of places was state was run by the state. And so those churches oftentimes had um, pastors who were employees of the state. They weren't necessarily there because they felt a calling. They were there because they had been trained and they had a job. And it was actually in a lot of places, a very lucrative job to have. And so um, especially if we were to focus in Germany and Denmark and the surrounding countries there, this was, this was heavily, because uh, Hegel was German, this was heav a heavy influence in both philosophy and in theology. Uh, the church had been largely intellectually sil silent up to that point. 
And part of the reason for that was um, they were looking for their own identity. It had been a while since they had been cut out of the philosophical picture. Um, and so they were really going through this sort of puritanical uh, theological and philosophical change. And it can really be seen in uh, the uh, colonies and then through uh, early America um, history, early American history, you can see the puritanical um, influences there. Uh, Hegelianism really gave Western Christianity a, a rebirth. And there is no better marriage than to marry the scriptures to absolutism and certainty. And that's what happened. Basically, the uh, church understood that what Hegel was suggesting would work really, really well with their theology of scripture or bibliology. And so they began to integrate that into their theology. And leading up until the 20th century, um, fundamentalism, uh, fundamentalism was really meant to, to combat scientism specifically the theory of evolution uh, with the newly developed uh, authority of scripture and the absolutism there. And so this is really where that's the science and religion debate uh, find their foundation is in this transition that's taking place. But before we go too far into the 20th century, I want to back up just a little bit and talk about a philosopher and theologian named Soren Kierkegaard. He's the mid 19th century, and he is not a part of this intellectual heritage, this German idealism, uh, but he is definitely tangentially related as one of its critics. Um, there was an intellectual problem and a cultural religious problem as he saw it. The intellectual problem was that uh, he, he would argue that not only is not all truth able to be explained through dialectic, but it is in and of itself unable to submit itself to the same criteria that it imposes on others. In other words, dialectic is sounds great and it's a great method, but it cannot submit to itself the same criteria. It requires a subject in order to enact it. And so as a result of that, there it's a subjective process and not an objective process. And as a result of that, if it's not an objective process, then it's not absolute. It's not certain. And so uh, Kierkegaard just wanted to emphasize that, look, it, to the church specifically, but to the, the culture as well, he, the intellectual culture, he wanted to assert that, look, everything is really a subjective enterprise here, and things are not as absolute as it seems, and we need to humble ourselves and get back to the task of living scripture, following it, and doing it. And it's really that simple. And if the church is going to begin to follow this uh, Hegelianism, then what's going to end up happening is the, um, the church is going to find out that the, it's not as absolute as it thinks it is. And the truth is, is really going to be a lie. And um, because even, follow, even one's faith is a subjective enterprise. So uh, because the thinker can never leave the subjective self, they cannot ever render anything objective. They're always caught and trapped within the self, which is always subjective, no matter what position or perspective one takes. Even, even Descartes would have to argue that. Descartes would have to argue that 
would probably argue that yes, there are things that are objective and those things are outside of the body. Things like uh, fossils and rocks and uh, water and, and things like that. We can objectively know and understand those things, but only because those things are outside of cogito. And so when those things are, are, are outside, we can definitely know those are objective. The, the problem is, is Kierkegaard argues that those things are not objective. They're still subjective because they require an interpretation. And that interpretation comes from a subject. And that subject must look at those things, say a rock, and, and determine that it is indeed a rock. And it is not a rock unless it has been determined that it is a rock. Otherwise, it is some other thing. And so even, the, even going outside of oneself and looking to other things is still a subjective enterprise. A cultural aspect to what Kierkegaard is arguing too. And I have long called Kierkegaard the, a cultural prophet because um, the bulk of Kierkegaard's religious writings were indirect refutations uh, to Hegel, Hegelianism, uh, and its influence on Christianity. Some of his works were humorous, many were ironic, but all of them were no doubt provocative. And Kierkegaard's main problem with the church was in its adoption of Hegelianism. But with that, um, he would claim that when this happens, when Christianity adopts Hegelianism, it is going to become a completely intellectual task. They're going to ignore the most important part of, of being, and they're going to miss the fact that theology is something that is lived and not just an intellectual enterprise. He also is going to differentiate and show the, in this church culture where the church as a group is going to become more important than Christianity or the Christian individual. And so um, because the entire task of theology is going to focus and center on the group or the church who is able to perform its task for it. And so this is this is why he's concerned he doesn't he is afraid that the individual will be lost in this task for dialectic and objectivity um and if you were to look at the 20th century that's exactly what happened and so this is why i refer to him as a uh, as a cultural prophet there is this moves us into the 20th century now and there is a theological philosophical problem that we have to deal with when it comes to unenlightenment and modernism. The 20th century is completely dominated by Hegelianism, uh, which, as we've discussed, consisted of absolute objectivity. Modernism created an altercation between two intellectual titans, and we've mentioned this, the church and the the church and science. These two groups were more than happy to embrace the absolutism for objectivity uh, for their in individual endeavors. Although this worked well uh, for science, it created a philosophical problem, which is still seen to this day uh, for within the modernistic worldview. And, and that is, you'll remember, you'll recall earlier that we talked about Kant's denial of metaphysics. Well, in science, you have the same issue. You have the denial of metaphysics because metaphysics cannot be uh, submitted to process. 
well, at least an objective process. And so because it can't be submitted to an objective process, it can't possibly exist in reality because reality is made up objectively of material and all of that reality can be tested. So if all that reality is all of reality and there isn't anything else, then metaphysics can't possibly exist. This is the line of thinking. You cannot apply objective physical principles to a subjective metaphysical God. And so if you deny metaphysics exists at the outset, then you're denying the mechanism from which God is to be known. And if you're doing that, you can't possibly know if God exists in that worldview. Whether you're Hegelian or a scientist, you will never conclude or come up with a conclusion that says the answer is God. And so uh, because of, they've denied metaphysics as a way of discerning truth at the outset. And, and in fact, the entire area of modern apologetics exists for this very reason, to objectify God, to make him into the type of object one can detect, so that people in the atheists in the scientific community, atheists in the, in the philosophical community can understand and have the ability to see God within their own worldview. This is the task of modern apologetics, to objectify God. And that is an unfortunate task to have been handed. Modern apologetics has not always been that way. We've had apologetics as far as uh, the patristics in the early church, we've been doing apologetics. And so, but modern apologetics task is quite different from the patristics task in apologetics in that we are trying, we are beginning by assuming the worldview of Hegel and modernism. We assume it at the outset. And because of that, because we assume it at the outset, now I'm not saying that theologians deny metaphysics because they don't, but they fail to see the connection that you can't um, physically prove a metaphysical God. They, for some reason, it just it doesn't, that doesn't click with them. And so they see this bridge between the two, which is apologetics and that, and that their task is then to make that connection for scientific and philosophical worldviews. So that is sort of the whole look at the enlightenment in a very brief period of time. Um, we could dive into each one of these characters, each one of these ideas and have our own podcast on those. And maybe we will in the future, but for now, we just, I wanted to provide a succinct explanation. Um, if, if really, if we ever want freedom for theological expression, we have to undo or deconstruct these enlightenment presuppositions, especially Hegelianism. The problem is that everything that we've learned in church, if you're alive today and you're listening to this podcast, everything you've ever learned in church has been influenced by modernism, has been influenced by the enlightenment. And so we need to back up. We need to rewind the tape and go back to the beginning when Descartes said that it is okay to doubt. He said that it's okay to doubt. That's what cogito ergo sum means, that it's okay to doubt. And it is okay to doubt. And once we have begun in doubt, we can then begin, as we just did here, reconstruct the ideas and come up with some answers as to why certain things are the way they are. And then we can look at those presuppositions, presuppositions and 
check them at the door. The only way around the influence that the church has uh, brought upon us is deconstruction. And the only way to make our faith our own is to unenlighten ourselves. I want to thank you for joining us on our first solo podcast. Please remember to give a thumbs up and subscribe to get more great content. I love all you guys and thank you for watching.